Hello, and welcome to the 80s Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Edward Havens. Thank you for listening today. As you may be aware, we have been on a hiatus for the last five weeks, but with the recent oddly timed August 2022 release of the movie Easter Sunday, which was originally supposed to come out on Easter weekend, but inexplicably got moved to late summer, I wanted to do a quick dive into another oddly timed release of a holiday-themed movie from 1987, Silent Night, Deadly Night, Part 2. Depending on how old you are, you may or may not remember the furor that surrounded the November 1984 release of the movie Silent Night, Deadly Night. In the film, a young man named Billy witnesses the murder of his parents on Christmas Eve by a man dressed as Santa Claus when he is five years old, and after years of abuse at the hands of the mother superior who runs the orphanage he and his little brother Ricky are remanded to, becomes a serial killer himself dressed up as Santa Claus. Originally titled Sleigh Ride, the film was shot in early 1983 in Utah using a mostly local cast and crew, but would sit on the proverbial shelf for nearly a year and a half after post-production was completed as the film's producers and distributor, Tripe Star Pictures, figured out the best way to market it. You see, they weren't really worried about the killer dressed up as a Santa Claus angle as it had been a regular trope in horror movies for more than a decade. They were more worried about the Catholics taking offense at the portrayal of child abuse at the hands of nuns. It would be rather late in the post-production timeline that the movie's title would be changed from Sleigh Ride to Silent Night, Deadly Night, and based on the new title, a graphic designer named Bert Klieger would create the key art which would be used for the posters and newspaper ads that played up the film's killer dressing up as Santa Claus. It was also decided that the film would first open in early November 1984 in northern and eastern regions, including Buffalo, Chicago, Cleveland, Minneapolis, New York City, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, and Washington, D.C., and parents were not happy about how the movie was being marketed. The National Parent Teachers Association fought to have the film removed from theaters, and a group of protesters, picketing the premiere of the movie at the Interior Quad Theater in the Bronx, New York, they would sing Christmas carols to those going in, in protest. One theater operator in Chicago would tell the industry trade paper variety during one of the protests outside their theater that they welcomed the protest. All the protests only served to promote what is essentially a second- or third-rate horror film into a public spectacle, he would say. When teenagers get wind of their parents' collective horrified state, the lines could well start at the right. And he would be right, at least for that weekend. At the 16 theaters in Chicago the movie was playing at, it would gross an impressive $185,000. Overall, the film would gross a decent $1.432 million from 398 theaters, but that would be less than half the per-screen average of another horror movie that opened the same weekend, Wes Craven's A Nightmare on Elm Street. But the film would not attract a bigger audience because of the controversy. After the second weekend of numbers showed that the film was losing half of its audience, TriStar would decide to scrap the post-Thanksgiving-wide release and remove the film from theaters. TriStar had already made their money back on the release of the $750,000 budgeted film, having spent less than half a million dollars on print and advertising. And it was pretty clear that there was 
no use trying to throw more money out the window in the hopes of capturing an audience that was already no longer coming. Ira Barmack, one of the producers of the movie, would attempt to purchase the rights to the film from TriStar to try to line up another distributor to get it back into theaters before the holiday season was over. TriStar would, in December of 1984, surrender all domestic and worldwide theatrical rights, each of the 435mm prints created for the initial theatrical release, every poster and trailer returned to the studio by theaters, as well as oversee rights to video cassette and cable releases to Barmack, but with some conditions, including barring Barmack from re-releasing the film in theaters between September and mid-February. Barmack was only partially satisfied. He didn't have to pay anything for all of this, but it would hurt the film's theatrical chances to make a profit during the most obvious holiday season for the film. Barmack would be able to make a deal with Aquarius Film Releasing and get the movie back into theaters, making its belated Los Angeles debut on March 7, 1986. The opening day ad would lose the killer Santa angle and instead played up the controversy. The movie that went too far, that so outraged Hollywood, the government, and parents everywhere, they tried to ban it. The movie so shocking and disturbing, they didn't want you to see it. Now you can see it, uncut, in all its terrifying horror. Well, that's certainly one way to sell a movie. But it didn't actually sell the movie. For whatever reason, be it the untimely release of the film, nearly 18 months after the controversy that initially surrounded it had died down, or people had already heard about how bad the film was, Aquarius Films did not release the grosses for the 28 theaters the film played in that week. And there doesn't appear to have been any further playdates for the film in theaters. And it would soon be released on home video through international video entertainment. But Barmack wouldn't admit defeat just yet. While he had pretty much acquired all of the rights to Silent Night, Deadly Night for nothing, he hadn't made much from it either. So what's a producer to do? Make a sequel. Sorta. Lee Harry, who had spent years as an editor of movie trailers, was hired by Barmack to re-edit the original film into a quote-unquote new film that could be passed off as a sequel. Eager to take advantage of a moment that might never come his way again, Harry and his editing partner, Joseph Earle, pitched Barmack on the idea of shooting some new footage and twining it together with the footage from the first film to create a quote-unquote new movie. Their idea was to have the younger brother, Ricky, tell the story of what happened in the first movie to his psychiatrist and then go into the first film as a series of flashbacks before a twist ending that would end up sealing the deal for Barmack. On January 5, 1987, Harry and Earl would be shooting their footage outside Los Angeles with a new set of actors. They had 10 days and $250,000 to work with. I guess one of the nice things about working on a movie like Silent Night, Deadly Night 2 with two film editors running the show and with an edict to use as much of one film as possible to make a second film, is that they can speed through post-production very quickly. Now, I've never seen either Silent Night, Deadly Night Parts 1 or 2, 
So I don't know how much of the first film ends up in the second movie. But most sources contend it's between 25 and 37 minutes of footage from part one that end up in part two. Harry and Earl were able to make more than half a film on a third of the budget of the original movie. But they were able to get everything done so quickly that although they started shooting the footage in January 1987, they were able to have a film ready for release not three months later. Although the film had been listed as a release of Silent Night Releasing, Barmack had hired Ascot Entertainment, who had released Lamberto Baba's Demons and the Brian Dennehy comedy The Check is in the Mail into theaters in 1986 to help get the film into theaters. The film would open first at 15 theaters in the southern United States area on April 10, 1987, and would gross a fair $53,442, a per-screen average almost identical to the first movie in its first week of release. In the second week, the film would gross another $86,787 from 37 theaters, a 146% increase in the number of theaters, but a 35% decrease in the per-screen average. But with the opening of the third movie in the Nightmare on Elm Street series hitting theaters on April 24th, Ascot Entertainment would pull the film out of theaters and wait for the Freddy Krueger mania to cool down a bit before giving it another go-round. When they finally did decide to give the film a second chance, they would release the movie in 16 theaters in Los Angeles on May 29th. It wasn't necessarily a bad idea. This was one of the few weekends that there were no new major releases in theaters, and Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3 Dream Warriors had indeed fallen off the charts after five weeks in theaters. And the other two horror movies also in theaters at the time, The Gate and Creepshow 2, were already pretty much dead, pun only slightly intended, after just two and three weeks in theaters respectively. But of the 16 theaters the film played in that weekend, only one, the 140-seat Egyptian 2 Theater in Hollywood, was tracked for grosses, and its box office take that week was an anemic $1,500. At $5.50 a ticket, that would equal 273 tickets sold over seven days. Five shows per day, and you're talking not even eight people in attendance per show. Ouch. In its second week in Los Angeles, only three theaters would keep the film, and after the second week, it was down to zero. The film would never again see the light of a movie theater projector, and its final reported gross would be $154,323. Over the years, Silent Night, Deadly Night 2 would become something of a cult classic, thanks to one scene in the film where Ricky shouts out, Garbage Day! just before he shoots a man with an old metal trash can in his hands. Garbage day! Huh? No! <laughs> the moral of today's story, stay the heck away from holiday-themed movies that are released out of its themed season. Thank you for joining us. We'll talk again in four weeks, when episode 84... The first part of our Miramax Films in the 1980s series is released. Remember to visit this episode's page on our website, the80smoviepodcast.com, for extra materials about the movie we covered on this episode.
The 80s Movie Podcast has been researched, written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens for idiosyncratic entertainment. Thank you again. Good night.